From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Jeff Hagerman is into ruins. The Atlanta-based photographer is an urban explorer. He squeezes through cracked windows and unhinged doors to access what remains after natural disasters, economic shifts, and the churn of urban development leave things empty. Photos on his sloppy stick Instagram page and abandoned Atlanta book series show moldering factories and malls, and once proud buildings now crumbling and overrun with weeds. These ghostly spaces are all part of a continuing story. They're canvases for graffiti artists, shelter for homeless people, and sets and backgrounds for post-apocalyptic productions like The Hunger Games and The Walking Dead. I spoke with Jeff Hagerman about his hair-raising occupation and asked what is the draw for him. Just the history is probably the most fascinating thing to me. Just wondering what went on there. And then, of course, I think it makes for good photographs also. And that's what really got me started into it. And then as I started to discover some of the history about the places that I've explored, then it really kind of fascinated me into I became a maniac, basically, just trying to find everything I could. Well, you are a bit of a maniac (laughs) from reading this book. The way that you get into buildings and stumble around in ruins, I mean, in really dangerous places. And, you know, there's vermin, there's battery acid, there's old industrial remnants. I I don't know. Are you crazy? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't know. I've never really felt super in danger. I mean, there have been a couple times, not not in Atlanta, but uh, I don't know. Most of the people that I run into are pretty friendly. And luckily, I've never come across, uh, you know, too much as far as any kind of animals or or anything like Any that. Any other critters. But there is a story of you trying to get into, I think it's the David Howard High School. In- <laughs> yes. Can you tell us what happened? Um, or you must be ref- uh, referencing in the, the window. window. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so it was a very heavy glass window, unfortunately. And I was trying to hold it up as I was going into the window at the same time. And I just kind of flopped in. And the window shut on my leg. And luckily, I had a friend there that was able to open the window and kind of let me fall <laughs> into the building. But down to, upside down. But, you know, I was limping around all day. And I knew my leg was sore. And when I left, I looked at my leg. And I was like purple, mm-hmm. literally from the thigh to the calf. I don't know what it did to my leg. But it, it hurt. Were the photographs worth it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the photographs are kind of astounding and stunning. I mean, there are, in in that place particularly, there's, you know, a long yellow hallway with blistering paint and these red doors that are still propped all open. There is this, I don't know, so what happens to your mind when you see these places that were once bustling, occupied places? Again, I just wonder, you know, what went on there before. Um, That's an interesting school because it was also like an ROTC school, I believe, Um, aside from being uh, Martin Luther King school as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Vernon Jordan, Maynard Jackson, I think mm -hmm. you found one there too. But uh, it had an armory downstairs, which is you know, odd. So this is the second uh, volume in Abandoned Atlanta, that series that you're doing. Pratt Pullman Yard is in there, Exide Battery, this massive high school. Mm-hmm. Huge industrial buildings in plain view, really, but people don't go in them. How do you find them? Good question. Whenever I first started, I just kind of stumbled upon a school. Um, I was really into photographing colorful graffiti, and I really love trains. And I just kind of naturally found myself finding abandoned buildings. So um, one day I was going down Huff Road and saw an abandoned school there. It was really unique looking because all the uh, classrooms were like octagonal shaped and it was covered in graffiti on the outside. So, you know, I kind of stopped and looked at it for a second and decided I was going to go eat lunch and then stop by on my way back. So I did stop by and I was peeking in the window and saw like a sleeping bag there and 
you know, being by myself, I didn't want to run into anybody. So I left, came back maybe the next weekend with a friend and then just hopped in the window and, and started looking around. But it's actually a lot of research mm -hmm. now. Um, sometimes I wander upon them, like the YMCA. That's something that I had no idea it was there. We were actually around the corner looking at another building, and we just happened to be walking by, and it looked like the door was a little bit cracked, and there was a plaque on the outside saying that it was a really you know historical building or whatnot. So we just started kind of peeking around inside. This is the YMCA on Butler Street in Atlanta. You didn't even know it was a YMCA. So what do you learn from reading the remains of an abandoned building? Uh, well, that place, I mean, you know, I found out, again, Martin Luther King was a member there when he was young, Vernon Jordan as well. Uh, Walt Clyde Frazier, who was a professional basketball player, played basketball in that gym. And... I don't know. It's just uh, su super interesting, just all the history that you uncover. Well, to me, that was especially fascinating because there are some rooms that are just trashed. You know, there's only a little puddle left in the pool, but others were remarkably intact. Isn't well, that the one with like a meeting room that looks like people just well, stepped out what, to get coffee? That was actually two different visits. Oh, okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so tell me more about that because these things deteriorate as time goes they on. They change as time goes on. Absolutely. Um, that place in particular, the first time we went. It still had electricity and running water, which is obviously odd for an abandoned building. And that was one thing that I'm sure was making it uh, perfect for homeless to be staying there. Right. And they were really protective over it, apparently. But, yeah, the first time we went, there was the boardroom. It had the huge wooden table and chairs and pictures of the board members on the wall. And the next time I went there, it just looked like a bomb went off. It was just concrete walls. And, you know, a homeless person had had a, a mattress sitting in there with some belongings and you know, different things like that. Yeah, and that's another layer of the forgotten places that are, people are living there now. Yes. So what happens when you do encounter people who have really claimed these spaces? You know, there's uh, all kinds of different reactions, honestly. Sometimes yeah. they're super nice. They'll want to show you around. Of course, you know, they'll ask for money. Some people are, uh, you know, really quick to ask us to leave. Most of the time we will. Luckily, nobody's been super aggressive or anything like that. Uh, really? I thought you had a gun pulled at you once. <laughs> <laughs> well, that are was you, in Chicago, you... and that was like security, apparently, in air quotes. Um, yes, we were leaving a building in Chicago, and we ran like morons, and I was hiding. Uh, we kind of split up. I was hiding, and uh, one of the so-called security guards came up with a gun and put it in my face. And mm. He didn't speak English. He didn't look like a security guard, and the gun didn't... It looked like it was stolen or something. I would be surprised if it had serial numbers on it. Mm. But, uh, yeah, he just like kind of led me, pointing the gun in my back to a little clearing, and luckily somebody that spoke English showed up and kicked me out. Well, you say we, and, and that, that's something I noticed, that we found this, or a friend and I went, do you ever go to alone? I, I have. Um, I obviously prefer to have somebody with me, um, but there have definitely been times when I've gone solo... There was a place in Pennsylvania, a huge psych uh, hospital, and I'd never been there before. I made the trip there, and my girlfriend at the time didn't feel like, uh, I guess she was kind of scared to go in because there were some Really? People. An abandoned asylum? <laughs> well, it wasn't really the hospital. It was We had to park in this uh, baseball field, and it was active. There were people all over the place, and she just didn't want to get caught, I guess, walking up to the uh, the hospital. So I went by myself and explored it for probably about three or four hours by myself. Mm. So there is an eeriness to these places, like, you know, the punch clock, the signs for the employees still there and leaves or vines growing around them. Mm -hmm. Are you creating narratives as you're shooting the photographs? I mean, you are really telling a story on some level. I, I do try to. Um, and, I, you know, a lot of people will move things around and try to make the photo 
photo better, but I, I would prefer to just kind of walk into a room as is and then just kind of try to come up with, like you said, just a like, like a narrative or a story to tell with the photograph. Have any places in particular just, you know, captured you, obsessed you? I mean, you obviously do research where you can read about the stories right. in this book. But any that just take your imagination? Um, there are definitely a few. Unfortunately, not in Atlanta. A lot of the places that are in my books from Atlanta are now uh, destroyed, so they're not even around anymore. But uh, there are some places in New Orleans. There's a hospital called Charity Hospital um, that was abandoned. After Katri Katrina, Exactly. Right? You know, it was evacuated during Katrina. So they left everything from personal belongings and gifts from people to body parts in jars. Mm. I'm speaking with Atlanta photographer Jeff Hagerman. He's author of Abandoned Atlanta Volumes 1 and 2, filled with often haunting, but just really beautiful images of crumbling relics of America's past. He's on Instagram as Sloppy Stick. <laughs> right. Sloppy Stick? <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, I get asked that a lot. Um, no. And uh, Interestingly, that name actually was made up long before I even got into photography or anything like that. I play pool, so that's actually where it came from. I wish I had a better story. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was just a, a pool-playing nickname. I want to go back to, you were talking about um, people bringing, you know, sometimes being welcoming if you come upon the place where they're living, sometimes not. Um, right. Many of them seem to carry knives, I've noticed, from your <laughs> narratives. But do you do you do you, you get a sense of how they live? Like there's one guy I can't remember. Was it at the Exide Battery place who told you he was going out back to take a shower? Yes. What? How did he shower? Um, that guy. Uh, I actually saw him again maybe a few months ago, and uh, the first time I saw him, I think was probably six years ago. Hmm. The first time we went to the Exide building, and he came rolling in with a garbage can, and he was super friendly. And just told us, hey, you might not want to go out back because uh, I'm going to be naked taking a shower back there. Because I guess the, the water felt good off of the hot roof or something like that uh -huh. that day. But he was there maybe the first three times I went to that building. He was super nice. The last time I went there, he was very obviously on some sort of drugs and had a knife in his pants. And, yeah, he was nice, but... Either way, I got out there as quickly as possible. But it makes me think you said six years. I mean, what, I what is it? I for sure he would be dead. I'm, I'm wondering, like, how does somebody survive? And oddly, he was probably two blocks from Exide when I saw him. A friend of mine and I were just driving in the area. It was actually raining, and I saw a guy on a bike. And from a distance, I, just, I knew it was the same guy. And I yelled at him, and he came over, and we talked for a minute. And, uh, yeah, he said that he was he's surviving. Wow. So what do, you, what do you carry with you when you're going into these places? Aside from my camera gear, really just, just like a flashlight. Yeah. Gloves. <laughs> that's, about, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, there's some pretty <laughs> nasty stuff in there. Exactly. Well, okay. So, But these are also dangerous on other levels. You're in dilapidated buildings that are half crumbling, broken glass, as we said. You right. know, rats, fleas. Uh, so places that people want to keep people out of. I mean, it, it is questionable legality what you're doing. Well, okay, it's full-on illegal what you're doing. <laughs> so, first of all, have you ever been arrested? The short answer is yes. Um, I've never been charged with anything. It's usually once they figure out that we are shooting photos, we're not stealing anything, we're not vandalizing anything, then they tend to be, you know, much more nice to us. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, you know, it's usually when we run. That's why I say it was stupid of us to run when we were in Chicago. It's just like a rule that we tell ourselves, just don't run. Usually if you don't run and just talk to them and say, hey, this is what I'm doing, then they'll just kick you out. Yeah, I see. But you do research on these places, you know, 
you found about Dr. King, where he went to high school, the list goes on and on. So what have you, in seeing all these abandoned places, and you're looking at them really intimately because you're taking photographs, you're very much engaging with them on some level. What do you think about the idea of being left behind? You know, what what is a place, of course, there are a lot of decisions, you know, there are business decisions, they're meeting in boardrooms, they're like, we're going to let go of this place. What does it mean to be left behind? I mean, that's one of the things that fascinates me about it. You know, there's no telling what happened to make, you know, the people either abandon the business or their home or, you know, whatever it might be, and just leave everything behind. This That is Jeff Hagerman, author of Abandoned Atlanta, Volumes 1 and 2. We have some pictures from his series on our website at gpbnews.org. And those books and those pictures tell stories of abandoned sites in Atlanta. We will leave you with a little of Ghost Town by the Specials to keep the haunted vibe alive. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Laraven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott, back again tomorrow with more on Second Thoughts and anytime on your own schedule with the OST Podcast. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. More than half of all homeless youth in Atlanta have experienced some form of human trafficking. The Atlanta Youth Count, a Georgia State University study, surveyed over 500 young people who are homeless on everything from personal demographic information to childhood trauma to their interactions with their peers. The new study paints a harrowing and at times hopeful picture of young people living on Atlanta's streets. It is one of the most comprehensive studies to date on this population, and it was led by Dr. Eric Wright, professor and chair of sociology at Georgia State University, joining me in the studio. Dr. Wright, thank you for being with us. Good morning. Anna LeBoy is a doctoral student at Georgia State who was project manager for the study also with us. Anna, thank you for being here. Thank you. Good morning. So, Eric, more than half of homeless youth encountering trafficking, that is alarming. But to better understand how you got to these numbers and got the trust and and understanding of this population, you began documenting youth homelessness. This was back in 2015, the first iteration of the youth homelessness count. So how did that lead you to where you are now in the Atlanta youth count? Well, as some folks may remember, in 2015, when we began this work, there was a lot of questions about um, sex trafficking in particular and what was the involvement of young people who were involved in commercial sex work of various sorts. So when we started that study, we added a bunch of questions in that survey, and we were kind of surprised by the numbers. When we finished that report, um, we had the opportunity to apply for funding from the National Institute of Justice, who are really interested in understanding the prevalence of trafficking more broadly. So when we were redesigning the study and wanting to do it again, we decided to expand the questions about trafficking. So in addition to asking uh, more detailed questions about commercial sex, ex- sexual exploitation, we also added a series of questions about labor trafficking that were developed by the Urban Institute. So that's an important distinction here between labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Help us understand that difference and, and what both look like when it comes to homeless youth in Atlanta. Well, the distinctions are sort of 
um, I would say academic in some ways because the uh, distinction between force, fraud, coercion of, for labor is sometimes overlapping with commercial sexual exploitation, and they often go together. And I think one of the things that we learned on the sort of in terms of the practical conversations we had used that some youth may experience a single episode of trafficking that might actually involve all four types. Um, but the problem is that um, the federal government and a lot of researchers are trying to distinguish between that. And I think what's also more interesting about that is that the labor trafficking is a lot more common than commercial sexual exploitation, mm -hmm. which sort of runs counter to some of the imagery that we hear when people talk about trafficking. Right. Anna, you spent a year in the field working mm -hmm. with homeless youth across the five metro counties of Atlanta and other student interviewers. So uh, help us understand what are, what are some of the examples of labor trafficking that you heard about from people you spoke to? Um, so some of the examples of labor trafficking, which one would fall into fraud, could be something like you worked for 12 hours, but they only paid you for six hours. Um, some of these youth also do some informal activities, so they may be paid under the table. So it may be a little harder to understand, you know, how much they should be paid. Um, individuals may do coercive acts, like taking their IDs from them um, in exchange for them working somewhere or doing particular kinds of work. Um, so that would be examples of labor trafficking. So how do you distinguish that as trafficking instead of just fraud <clears throat> or um, misuse or, or abuse of labor? So the way that the federal government defines it is that under somebody that you work for, you have to experience force, fraud, coercion, um, in order to be labor trafficked. So if someone you work for, for instance, keeps your ID, then that is considered to be labor trafficking. All right. So when we do hear the word trafficking, uh, our minds go straight to sex trafficking, mm -hmm. as you pointed <clears throat> out. Even further, the image of a cisgendered white female, for the mm -hmm. most part. How do you get people to think about or understand more common trafficking situations that typically don't look like that? Well, I think um, I'm not sure how we get people to understand that. I think part of it is because a lot of organizations have used those imageries to grab people's attention. I think I think as more and more research is done, I'm, we're really understanding this is a much more complex and a much more multifaceted problem. And I think here in the metro Atlanta and perhaps in the south, I don't know, but it's heavily African-American. Um, actually, we found a lot more men being trafficked, particularly for their labor, than we realize. I think So I think the reality is, um, and I think this is one of the reasons that the NIJ funded this particular project as well as other projects trying to study the prevalence because we don't really have good data. Most of the uh, egregious examples are prosecutor-based data sets where it's the people who are prosecuted. And I think that tends to sort of skew our perspective mm -hmm. on the situation. Right. And so uh, what would be examples of things that young men are, are used for? What kind of labor situations? Um, so we heard uh, quite a few things happening in like some generic industries like construction. So um, we had some of our youth who may have been in construction job sites who were not paid what they should have been, but they also may not have been like actually registered to work, right? They may not be given their IDs in these kind of situations. Um, and so those were kind of the examples that a lot of the men have or in different kinds of under-the-table jobs in restaurants throughout the city. Um, we heard a lot of examples of that, like they're busboys, but they're not being paid properly for their hours. And I've drug trafficking, too. Drug, yeah, trafficking, drug trafficking as well. Okay, yeah. so used as mules or people right. who are okay. um, selling on the streets. Well, you mentioned African Americans, and I would love to get to that, but the, the demographics of the people that you spoke to found a high percentage of homeless youth LGBT. 23% identified as gay, lesbian, or bisexual. 6% identified as transgender. Now, Eric, you make the breakdown, you make a distinction here between the LGBT and T. In fact, mm -hmm. pull them apart into 
into separate groups when analyzing the data. Why? What, what's, what's different with trans homeless youth? Well, I think one of the things that researchers are starting to realize is that the LGBT category is actually a very heterogeneous category and that there's different situations that evolve in that. The one common theme that runs across the four groups in that category um, is basically a lot of family rejection in the South. It's not surprising. This is exactly the same finding we had actually in 2015. I mean, the percentages are remarkably similar. Um, but most of them reported having been thrown out of their homes or having difficult family relationships in part driven by their sexual or gender identities. So you also found a disproportionately high prevalence of African-American youth. Can you give us a sense of like what that proportion was? Um, like how, how many African-Americans compared to the rest of the population? So we actually found about 80% would be classified as either um, African-American only or mixed race when most of our individuals who identified as mixed race were African-American and some other race or ethnic background, which is actually also quite similar to what we found in 2015. So does having multiple identities uh, oppressed, say being black and bisexual or homosexual, predict poorer outcomes? Um, we haven't really dive, uh, dove into the data in terms of looking at intersectional questions like that. We're starting to look at that. We do find, though, that multiple minority statuses tend to magnify these problems. Probably the bigger impact here is the um, we do find big differences by um, being trans is uh, very much of a risk factor for a whole variety of reasons, and LGB as well. Um, but being black doesn't sort of jump out as sort of increasing rates in certain categories. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that cuts across all of them is the rates of trauma in their backgrounds. Um, most of the youth, I mean, the vast majority of the youth experience some sort of trauma in their background that may have, in fact, been causally related to their becoming homeless. And then the, we also find that the longer that they're homeless, the more likely they are to be trafficked. Anna, that's something that you really looked into, the relationship between homeless youth and childhood trauma. How did you, there was a way that you actually helped rate these or understand better these childhood traumas. Can you give us a sense of that scale and what are the things that you came across over and over again? Yeah, so we used the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, which was developed by the CDC originally um, with Kaiser Permanente. And that goes to look at the different kinds of childhood traumas you could have. So things as like emotional trauma in your home, somebody in your home being mentally ill, and this occurs before the age of 18. So in the general population, individuals usually score between a one and a two. That's usually about the average. Our population scored anywhere between like a three and a five on the average, with about 60% of our youth scoring above a two, which means that they had adverse like trauma in their background. So probably complex trauma, many different right. layers. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of them did have that. We had high percentages that were six, seven traumas, um, which are very high in relation to this scale. So to pick up on what Eric said, how does a history of trauma affect the susceptibility to trafficking? Um, so we know that trauma is interrelated to many different health outcomes. So there's many publications and research around this. Um, trauma is, in our study, extremely linked to all forms of trafficking for fraud, coercion, and commercial sexual exploitation, um, both over the lifetime and while they're homeless. Um, and so we see these things kind of interplaying and working with one another. Um, there's been previous studies that have looked at childhood trauma, looking at the ways in which it affects different kind of coercive behavior and health risks. Anna LeBoy there, doctoral student at Georgia State University. Also with me, Dr. Eric Wright, professor and chair of sociology at GSU. We're talking about their study on homelessness in, it, in youth homelessness in Atlanta, finding that more than half of those that they surveyed had experienced trafficking. So, Eric, you also found that while talking to these youth, they did not feel necessarily like they had been exploited. How, do, how does labeling them as, quote, victims of exploitation 
complicate their access both to understanding it for themselves and to services that might be able to help them. I think this was one of the biggest surprises. I think the system um, is very likely to label them as victims, but when they don't identify themselves as victims, they may not see necessarily a match between what the services that we're trying to offer them and how they're experiencing their lives. And I think that disconnect is um, suggests to us the, the need to think about how do we talk about engaging them in services um, in a new way that might actually make them more receptive to services mm-hmm. and help. So for that conversation, I'm just wondering about it. You know, somebody tells you, well, I was, you know, I was made to do this construction job and I wasn't paid and I was kept in a dormitory. Um, and you say, well, that's trafficking. I mean, did, what, what is the response in that kind of case? Are you telling them that they were trafficked or exploited? So as researchers, that is not our job right. to explain that to them. However, we did refer them to services. So if we would hear different things that they would tell us, we may not say, oh, you're being trafficked. But we may say, hey, this youth organization right here may be helpful t- for you. Maybe talk to this social worker that may be able to help you in the situation that you're in. And you did find, Anna, that peers and peer groups were very important to these young people living on the the streets. How, what did those relationships look like? Um, these peer groups are very important for a myriad of reasons. So we found in our previous study in 2015 that most of our youth exited their social support services that they had when they were younger, so their families, and made these fictive kinship relationships. So in order for survival on the street, they really rely on one another in order to survive, to get food, to get jobs. Um, and this also interplays in the ways in which they can be exploited because their friends may have a job say at the construction site and say, hey, I get paid good money for Tuesday. I got paid X amount of money. And that's kind of how they all get into these kind of coercive situations. So that that could be a sort of gateway. Their peer groups can be a gateway to these these trafficked situations. How about in terms of prosecutions? I know this is not your job either. You're not investigators. But is there any way that in terms of sex trafficking, you know, you want to find the ring, you want to find the perpetrators. How about in these labor trafficking situations? Is there have you been called upon to help understand what's going on here? Well, we haven't been called on that, and we wouldn't be able to participate in that because that's actually part of the legal requirements associated with getting NIJ funding because their goal is to understand the problem. Mm-hmm. But I would say going back to your question or your point about sort of the ambiguity of these situations, I think we didn't necessarily see a lot of quote-unquote rings. Um, What we saw were a lot of young people who were banding together to cope. And I think what they would probably sort of say is we're just trying to make do. And so, and this is where, and sometimes the people that stood out to us would be young people who would, by the legal definition of Georgia law, qualify as traffickers because, in fact, they're kind of managing the exchange and the transactions with these different people, whether Uh they're just exchanging drugs or whether they're exchanging sex or what have you. But then they're cooperatively working together to sort of make men's meet. And so I think that goes into their sort of psychology, if you will, because they're not necessarily seeing themselves as victims or seeing themselves as surviving on the streets. And these are just strategies that they find that they can be effective in getting themselves some food or some place to stay. Right, even as a part of a group. Mm -hmm. But you did speak to law enforcement agencies for your research. How did they understand or react to some of the more, those nuanced situations that you're talking about that you heard from homeless youth? Well, I think um, we've been having a lot of conversations over the last six months as we've been sharing preliminary results. And one of the things that we're learning is that they see the same complexities that we saw. And I think what you find is that prosecutors tend to Um, focus on the most egregious cases where there's pure and clear evidence that they meet the legal definitions. And I think the reality is that many of them we talk to is really sort of say the world is very murky when you're actually Mm -hmm. on the street Mm -hmm. and trying to find 
quote-unquote cases of trafficking is not nearly as clear-cut as sometimes the rhetoric we hear in the news Mm -hmm. uh, makes us think it is. Well, in a city like Atlanta that has been gentrifying very quickly, one of the big problems that has been identified over and over again is affordable housing. Mm -hmm. How does that play into, if you're talking about youth who maybe left their home because they were rejected, because they were gay or trans or bi, how does that, do do they play into that system? Do they have access to those kind of housing uh, Opportunities. No, and I think actually that's the other sort of major story. It's not, I mean, LGB and T youth get rejected from their families, but I think the vast majority of all of the youth um, have what I sort of think of as sort of the difficulties in launching into an adulthood or the transition to adulthood is very difficult. And it's in part because we just have a profound absence of affordable housing. So when you think about it, a young person gets mad or just gets tired of living at home and is ready to launch into adulthood, where do they land? And they may try, and then they end up not having enough resources or um, being able to sort of maintain a house. And so they end up homeless or they go in and out of housing situations that are very complex. So the lack of a strata of affordable housing is really about making it difficult for young people to launch successfully into adulthood. Another connection here is that you found that a lot of them had been through the foster care system or the criminal justice system. Is that another path that you identify? Or how does moving through these systems make them more vulnerable? Um, So we know that about 40% of our youth were in the foster care system at one point. Um, And these youth oftentimes, they talk about moving from system to system. So some of the conversations we had with youth was that maybe foster care was not able to provide them what they needed in order for them to learn how to live, and then they ended up homeless. Um, The same thing as far as like being involved in the childhood, um, any kind of childhood system, such as DJJ or being arrested before the age of 18. Um, These are also highly correlated with trafficking in itself. So um, if you are in one of these systems, you're more likely to experience trafficking in your lifetime. So we are coming up against the break. But, you know, the conversation about homelessness and youth and trafficking, obviously very negative in many ways. But you have said it's important to recognize that there are very positive, optimistic, future-oriented characteristics among these uh, different from the chronic adult homeless population. Based on your interaction with them quickly, I'm so sorry. But what's driving that optimism? I think it's being youth. I mean, I think one of the things Anna's actually dissertation is really focused in on resilience um, and understanding sort of why they're optimistic about the future. I think they're really just struggling to become an adult. And I think that's the source of a lot of this resilience. And I think what we think is happening is that over their young adulthood, as long as they keep running into these traumas, then they begin to get beaten down, so to speak. And if they continue to be homeless, then they become more like the long-term chronically homeless adults we see on the street. Dr. Eric Wright, thank you so much. And Anna LaBoy, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, the great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker Dacre, keeping up the family tradition, or perhaps the alive or undead family tradition. We're celebrating Halloween early with him. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Dracula lives, if that's what you can call it. Well, if you have actually read Bram Stoker's 1897 horror novel Dracula, They know a lot about him, thanks to Bella Lugosi. I am Dracula. Christopher Lee. I am Dracula, and I welcome you to my house. Frank Langella. Count, um, some wine. You haven't... um... No, thank you, Doctor. I never drink wine. And a legion of imitators. The seminal Gothic novel has never been out of print and continues to inspire others, notably the best-selling Interview with a Vampire series by Anne Rice, the Twilight books and films... HBO's True Blood series, fan fiction, comic books, 
and of course, Muppets. Aha! Greetings, class, and welcome to counting school! Bram Stoker's Dracula derives from old folk tales and superstitions. That's what we learned from Dacre Stoker, who for decades has been piecing together clues about what moved his granduncle to write Dracula. I found this one interview by Jane Stoddard in the British Weekly newspaper uh, that came out just after Bram wrote Dracula. And it's the only interview we've ever found where someone sat down, like you're sitting with me, and say, why did you write the story? Where did you get this information from? What's the truth in this myth? And Bram went on to say, you know, it, it, there's actually a mixture of fact and fiction. People really believed in the 1700s that vampires existed. And part of it was because a little bit of ignorance of the decomposition of bodies. And when they would go to graves of suspected vampires and open them up, they would see a bloated body, which would resemble to them with sort of juices dripping out of the, out of the mouth and making the shroud discolored, that this being was an undead creature coming out of the grave at night and taking the life out of the others. What was really happening is this body was bloating up with the gases, juices were coming out of the, out of the mouth, and somebody else in the family had gotten the plague or something else, so they figured this guy was sucking their life. Uh -huh. So what would they do? Stake him into the ground, or in some cultures it was take the heart out, burn it at crossroads, and make sort of a tea out of this mixture and feed that to the others in the household. And that we've actually found in 2004, that actually happened in Romania. 2004, they're still doing this, this type of thing. So th these are some of the things that, that we found out that Bram was well aware of. And again, in, in uh, New Hampshire and Vermont, they were doing the same thing, but it's tuberculosis. We spoke with Dacre in Savannah, a city crawling with as many ghost tours as ghost stories. Dacre was there to promote Dracul, the first ever prequel authorized by the Stoker estate. Dracul fills in some mysteries about Dracula's origins, including the first 102 pages cut from the original novel, pages discovered in a Pennsylvania barn in the 1980s under the title The Undead. Then there's Bram Stoker's Lost Journal, discovered in 2011. Dacre Stoker teamed up with horror writer J.D. Barker to write Dracul. Together, they portrayed the young Bram Stoker as an author wrestling with demons that, to him, may not have been the stuff of fiction. I asked Dacre Stoker about what it was like for he and his family to live under his great uncle's legacy. Well, I, I first say we didn't live like the Munsters or the Adams family. <laughs> Many people believe that's a possibility. Did they think you we lived were, in a haunted house? We were quite normal living in, uh, growing up in Montreal, Canada. But there were a few of these old books high up in a shelf that Dad sort of said, just stay away from until you're ready. Huh. And I was about 12, and I kept, you know, I kept getting irritated when kids would come to the door at Halloween and go, oh, what's going to happen at your house? You give us candy or take our blood? And I'm like, Dad, what's going on? And he finally said, okay, I'm going to tell you. And he pulled this sort of mustard yellow book off the shelves in a Dracula, and it was signed by Bram to his mom, and then passed on to one of his brothers and his wife, and now it's in our possession. And it was like, okay, I, b I better read it. And I'm embarrassed to say at 12, I didn't quite get it. Mm. But I did leaf through a very old and valuable book. But years later in, in university, I bought a cheaper version uh, and, and did get into the story. And it was, uh, it, it was mystifying because it was not an easy read, but when you take the time and, and get through it and then think about it, go back and do it again and again, there's just more and more things under the, the layers. It's like peeling back an onion. There's more to Dracula than meets the eye. Well, then you resurfaced in your life later, what, in the early 2000s, you started really digging into research. Right, I mean, I, I had a sporting life and I was a teacher and, and it was like, 
unbelievable one day I got a phone call by this guy Ian Holt saying I got a screenplay would you like to get involved in turning this into a book and I've never written anything like that but that was a catalyst to start doing some really serious research finding out about my family's background and the roots and not just Bram but the rest of them and that just opened the door to where I am today lecturing around the world you know books it's a fantastic ride I've been on you worked on a book of fiction with Ian Holt right the, the fictional book was Dracula the Undead so this was like a sequel it was a continuation yeah it was a sequel of Dracula it started 25 years after Dracula ended and the little baby that was born Mina's baby and somebody else's <laughs> was it Jonathan's child or not you have to read to, to see that one but it's fun and it, and it continued the story but during the research for that I actually found that one of my cousins, Bram's great-grandsons, had in his attic in the Isle of Wight in England a box of, of things, and one of them was a journal of Bram's. And that's when I called up my friend Elizabeth Miller, who was one of the foremost scholars in the world, and she says, Dacre, you have found you know, the Holy Grail. Nothing ever written like this has been found. We found his Dracula notes, his typescript, but nothing that is Bram as a young man growing up in Dublin as a university student and just pouring his soul out into this notebook, this journal. And some of it was romantic, some was funny, some was horrifying, but it was an insight into Bram's brain that sort of put me on the road to, I gotta know as much as I can about this relative of mine. Well, especially because it sounds like your family was kind of backing off from it or not fully embracing it. So what was it like for you to look at those journals and feel this connection or revelations about well, this man? Well, I'll never forget what, what ended up happening is I couldn't take the real journal home with me. I mean, it's pretty priceless. So I had someone over there photograph it and then I flew home and I was waiting for all the images to show up as, as they would come fairly slowly and of course I'm looking for and I have to blow it up on the screen is there anything about Dracula in here? You know the origin of Dracula is it here? Any thoughts? And there was a few pieces that it was but the rest of it was this again this is Bram he is a man who's aware of many things going on in the world around him I also felt that he was sort of a conflicted guy he was a clerk in the Petty Sessions department in Dublin Castle so it was a boring mundane life but he had this artistic side that wanted to sort of creep out this soul to come forward and his father slapped him down a little bit when he had an opportunity to do a play um, with Genevieve Ward this very famous American actress and it was like no you need to you know, be the clerk you need, to, you need you to work hard for the family. He was the breadwinner, Bram, for the whole family when his dad retired. Mm -hmm. So I got this glimpse into this sort of conflicted soul, this young man, which caused me to go deeper and deeper and find out more stuff about him. And that lost journal was, the, was really the first, the first piece to get me into his, into his brain. Was it there that you discovered that there had been a preface written for Dracula, the original 1897 novel that well, wasn't printed? <laughs> oh God, that, that's a really long story. But um, the preface was discovered in 1989, I think, by a guy called Richard Dalby. And it was like, okay, it was found in Iceland. It was translated. How did it get there? What does it really mean? But it struck me that this was Bram telling us his story is real. And I, you know, I kind of got the impression that Bram was not a kidder. But he could be a bit of a showman. He was a theater manager. But that stuck with me, this idea of the preface from Iceland that we now found out Books had to be serialized in those days for copyright protection. It went to Sweden first in the newspapers, didn't get published in a, in a book in Sweden, but the newspapers were sent to Iceland into the newspapers there. But for some reason, all the newspapers didn't make it off the boat. And so when they published the serialization of Dracula in Iceland in 1901 in the book, they didn't get it all there, but the preface was there. 
and the story has now come out. It's a, quite a different story. I wrote the introduction to it. Hans de Roos of, of uh, Germany you know, wrote the thing or translated it, had it done, but it really is a somewhat different story, but it is so darn, it feels it's so real. Real people, politicians, corrupt politicians running around London under the power of the count. Slightly different than the version we know to this day. So is that why it wasn't printed in the original novel? I, I, I think my theory is that it was a rough copy. It may have been a little too realistic, a little too horrifying, a little too scary. And uh, either Bram's own self was like, I've got to edit this, or his Archibald Constable uh, editor said, you, you need to change this. It's too scary. It's too real. Plus the fact that during the time of all this Jack the Ripper murders were going on, and I think the people in London were a little up to their eyeballs in horror and blood. So back off a little bit, Bram. You've got to make this a little more acceptable. The superstitions from Eastern Europe were sort of right on people's tongues. They, they felt that vampirism was a possibility and that it really could be something to be concerned about. And that's how you dig in with this book that you wrote also with J.D. Barker, who is, has written a few horror novels of his own. Absolutely. J.D.'s a great talent. I needed somebody with a thriller mystery side. Virginia, this is not just another slasher Dracula story. This, this needed to be the origin story of, of Bram Stoker and how he went about writing his novel Dracula, obviously fictionalized with J.D. and my mm -hmm. input, as if Dracula was a warning to the world that vampires are real. And so you write the book as if they are postings in his journal or journal entries That's along right. the way. Well, he is a sickly child in the book, but also has some characters and some meetings that are really fortuitous or life-changing with a couple of different characters. One, a, a guardian of sorts, Ellen Crone. Ellen is that, Crone uh, really was the family. Oh, she was. So she, she's based she on a real person. Was she maybe one of those who was telling him these stories of the undead? We know. Which is quite a thing to tell a little kid. Well, yes, but it was Ireland at that. Okay? <laughs> These guys lived through cholera right, epidemics. Right. And the banshees and the... It was commonplace. I mean, right. most people think, well, Savannah's different. They, they know about St. Patrick's Day and, and all the things that go on in Ireland that are not just little leprechauns. I mean, their mythology is, is horrifying. Banshees and fairies are not the leprechaun you see, in, in you know, the Notre Dame uh, guy running around with the pot of gold. It, it is some horrifying stuff. And, and we found one story, Derg Du that fit perfectly in the story, a real story that we believe Ellen told Bram, and we wove that into our own story. So it's, it's almost like bringing Irish mythology to life by interjecting our characters into it. So he's coming into contact in this novel, begins so eerily, he's basically locked himself in a chamber with mirrors and crucifixes and... A shotgun. That's right. Ready to hit someone at the door. I will let the rest of the mystery of the novel go from there. But pulling that fictional scene of horror from a life that was really, do you think, haunted by horror? I, I think there was some trauma in his life that was horrifying. I, I believe uh, I found evidence that he was bloodlet. And when I looked into one of his uncle's background that he wrote a, a treatise on bloodletting, and when I looked at what the description was of somebody who's bloodlet, that you are, a certain amount of blood is taken out of you until you pass out. And then they fill you up with, they rehydrate you with claret, which is red wine. So they make you drunk. So here's this little kid 
hearing these horrifying stories, hearing about premature burials from his mom from cholera epidemic, and then also being in this sort of drunken stupor on and off. So I really believe, and when, you, when we think of post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, when I was driving down and I heard this interview of, of Parkland shooting mm. and, and Columbine shooting people, still, you know, 30 years later feeling this stuff, I believe Bram had the same sort of experience, that he had this in his background as a child, but then years later when he starts researching in the London Library about the real vampire scares of Europe, 1700s when the plague was running through Europe, they didn't know how to explain this, they thought it was vampirism. Years later, Bram comes to America and opens up the New York World newspaper and finds the same vampire scare in New England. 50 state approved exhumations of graves, taking the heart out, burning it at crossroads, staking them. But it's tuberculosis that's causing the problem. But these old superstitions die hard. And Bram combined these things, his own personal trauma, with what people were led to believe to make this masterpiece. And that's, again, that's what J.D. and I explain in sort of a fictional manner in Dracul. Well, it is so fascinating, the kind of parallel of his mystery, discovering parts of himself and opening up to telling a story and you doing the same thing as you're kind of tracing his life. Well, it is. There are some weird similarities as I do that because, you know, from, from a, you know, a standpoint of a, a family member, the only one who's really decided, and I'm full, the family supports it. They're, Dacre, go for it. Let us know what you found. They, they love it, but someone's got to do it. And so finding these things, it's like putting a piece of a puzzle together. The more I find, I complete the sort of the puzzle. And, and Dracul is only a part of it, because there's still a lot more out there. I, I'm sure that we've yet to find out about Uncle Bram um, and even other things he's written, other journals. I, I mean, this is, sounds crazy, but the London Library just discovered that all of the books that he had used for research were sitting there in the general circulation. And a little bit of naughty way, Bram went in and started doing little notations inside the, the margins. <laughs> lucky for you. <laughs> well, it is. It's lucky for us because we can see exactly where these thoughts came from, ah. what, what he was researching at the time, these emerging sciences. I mean, there was a book that had a whole chapter on vampirism, on mesmerism. You and your family, you're the official keepers of the Bram Stoker legacy and estate. Yep. But look at where it's gone. You know, we have the Twilight movies. We have True Blood. We have, you know, countless Halloween costumes and even breakfast cereal. Exactly. You know, watching sure. what has happened Camp to this. Chocolate. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking of that this morning when I was thinking, you know, it touches on little kids in breakfast cereal and the Count in Sesame Street all the way to, you know, movies, some R-rated movies, X-rated movies and everything in between. But where people have gone with this, you know, the sort of goth imagery or the, the idea of the beautiful vampire making their stealthy way through the night. But it sounds to me like Bram was struggling with what it literally meant to be among the undead. I, I, think, I think he was, both personally, you know, with his illness himself, but he also was a guy that recognized sensitivities of people around him. London was struggling with Jack the Ripper murders going on. Bram Stoker and Henry Irving had to stop production of um, Dr. Jack and Mr. Hyde in the Lyceum. He was sensitive to that. Bram wrote a line that I love in Dracula. It sums it up really. There are mysteries which men can only guess at, which age by age they may solve only in part. And nowadays we're dealing with the paranormal in a very same way. We want, to, we want proof, but we just have to believe. It's possible. And if you have an open mind, it may just be possible. 
That's from my conversation with Dacre Stoker at the Savannah Book Festival. His new book, Dracul, is a prequel to his great-granduncle Bram Stoker's 1897 novel, Dracula. Dracul is based on pages missing from the original edition and research into the life and journals of Bram Stoker. It's now being developed into a film by Paramount Pictures. You can find more on the novel and see image of some of the documents that Dacre discovered. That's at gpbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.